morning. Um, Justice Irvin has pot potentially been exposed uh, to COVID, so he is going to wear a mask this morning. Uh, our first case is uh, Nation Forward Baptist Church uh, versus uh, Davis, uh, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Justices. May it please the court. My name is Gray Brotherton, and I, along with my colleague Lisa Godfrey, represent the appellants in this matter. Uh, the appellants are the Plaintiff Church and the individual third-party defendants, Mr. Joseph Dixon, Mr. Charles Elliott, and Mr. Douglas Willie. And Mr. Dixon and Mr. Elliott are here with us in the courtroom today. The Plaintiff Church was incorporated as a North Carolina nonprofit corporation in 1988. The Articles of Incorporation established that the sole governing authority of the church was the Board of Directors, originally comprised of Mr. Dixon, Reginald Gabriel, and the late Philip Davis, who was the first pastor of the church and also the father of the defendant. The church soon became known as Nations Ford Community Church and began operating as a non-denominational Christian fellowship. It was not formed as a congregational church, rather it was formed uh, under the hierarchical system where the sole authority to run the church rested with the board of directors. The Articles but, but of Incorporation... When you, when you say hierarchical, there's no, there are no denominational bodies above it. I'm sorry, what was the last part there's, of the question? There no, when you say hierarchical, you are not saying that there's any type of, any type of denominational agency or entity on top of the, uh, the church itself. The church is not subject to control by any other body. Correct, solely the solely this board of directors, hierarchical. So when you say hierarchical, you're, you're using that in the sense of the entity that claims to be the governing body has complete authority, it's not subject to control by members? Correct, okay. right, that's that's correct. That's the, uh, in a lot of these cases, the, the denomination between the two is either Congregational or, or hierarchical is the, or is the term. Connect, connectional is another word I've seen in some cases. Right, right. Okay, thank right. you. Uh, the Articles of Incorporation explicitly provide that, that the organization has no members and the congregation has not voted on any matter in the church's 34-year history. By 1997, the church was thriving. It had acquired a large tract of land and began constructing a new campus with a large worship center and administrative offices and, and an academy and, and other uh, ministries. And that same year, the directors decided to um, elect Charles Elliott and, and Douglas Willie to the board, and they also adopted bylaws to govern the church operations. The bylaws also created a board of electors to serve as a liaison between the directors and the congregation, and the original uh, elders, I'm sorry, a board of elders, um, and the original elders were Philip Davis, William McNeely, Douglas Willie, and Charles Elliott. And again, the adoption of the bylaws and the appointment of this board of elders was all done by the board of directors and through no vote of the congregation. By 2008, the church had over a thousand active members and employed several uh, associate pastors and other staff to operate the church and its ministries. Around that time, a disputed set of bylaws appeared and the disputed bylaws were not known to the directors or the elders and, and uh, not even known to the defendant at that time. Um, and there's nothing in the record to indicate that these bylaws were ever uh, considered and adopted by the, the governing authority of the church. In August 2015, Philip Davis suddenly passed away and the church was left without a senior pastor. The remaining directors, Mr. Dixon, Mr. Elliott, and Mr. Willie, promoted the defendant from assistant minister to senior pastor. 
The terms of his appointment were at will, and he was to serve at the pleasure of the Board of the Directors. The letter of appointment is attached to the counterclaim, and it's um, on record page 66. Unfortunately, it's, it soon became clear that the defendant lacked the leadership and interpersonal skills required to lead uh, a large and varied congregation. He did not interact well with the staff, and the directors fielded constant complaints from church employees and attendees. Uh, they tried to work with him on his job performance, give him constructive criticism, um, several meetings, um, but they didn't take, and, and he refused to make the necessary changes. Uh, the defendant even admitted on, on an occasion that, uh, to the directors that he didn't have the calling to lead such a large and varied congregation. The members of the congregation, as I said, had no voting power, so they voted with their feet. The congregation fell to less than 350 by June of 2019, down from, from well over 1,000. The directors felt they had exhausted all, all their options and had no other choice but to remove the defendant, and they voted to terminate him in June of 2019. The defendant thereafter refused to accept their decision and continued calling church meetings and worship services on church property. The directors ordered him off the church property, but he refused to comply and became increasingly hostile with them uh, and other church staff. The directors were forced to change the locks on the doors of the church buildings, but these locks were drilled out and broken. The defendant continued to make unauthorized entries on the property where he would hold these unsanctioned services and even collect final uh, financial offerings that went to him individually. And this practice was not only deceitful, but it also threatened the church's uh, non-profit status. The directors, again, tried everything within their power to, to reach a, an amicable uh, solution, but the defendant simply wouldn't relent, and the church was forced to file this complaint. And the church's complaint seeks very limited, uh, specific relief. It sought injunctive relief to prevent the uh, the defendant from coming onto church property after he'd been ordered not to do so, and it sought damages for his uh, conversion of church property and the, the physical damage to the church uh, buildings. The church ultimately obtained that preliminary uh, injunctive relief, banning the defendant from the premises and preventing him from, from harassing church staff. And I would uh, encourage the court to take particular notice of the, the facts found in that order. Um, regarding all the issues, but, but also the, the bylaws issues that I'll address in a minute. Uh, in response, the defendant filed an expansive counterclaim and third-party complaint against the uh, elders or the directors individually, and the counterclaim sought much more broad relief. Um, it sought preliminary and permanent injunctive relief to reinstate the defendant as senior pastor of the church, but also to declare him as the spiritual leader and bishop of the church. He also sought a declaratory judgment stating that the church was governed by the disputed bylaws. Uh, he also sought an audit of the church finances to, to uh, question some of the expenses and sought the recovery of, of money from the elders individually um, based on these allegedly improper uh, church expenditures. The appellants in turn filed a motion to dismiss uh, the counterclaim and the third party claims for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and lack of standing. The defendant responded by moving to amend his, uh, amend his pleading, uh, but the proposed amendment doesn't materially change the, the allegations uh, that were challenged uh, for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The defendant still wants the court to declare him the bishop and senior pastor, uh, grant him back pay and allow, allow him to audit the church finances and uh, recover that money that he alleges was improperly spent. Uh, the trial court denied that motion to dismiss and granted the defendant leave to amend, and the Court of Appeals affirmed with, with a dissenting opinion from Judge Murphy. Um, I want to start by addressing the, the Court of Appeals majority opinion regarding the, the subject matter jurisdiction. And at least, Mr. Brotherson, at least as I understand the record, the Court of Appeals allowed all of the claims to go forward that were asserted by the defendant? Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, so both the, the U.S. Constitution and the North Carolina Constitution preclude subject matter jurisdiction where the claims would require the court to uh, delve into ecclesiastical matters. And, and these are matters that involve doctrine, creed, form of worship, and the adoption and enforcement of, of religious um, 
regulations governing church operations, and there's a, a long line of cases that that, that, that comes from. And the, the linchpin of the analysis is whether the claims can be resolved by neutral principles of law. And I'll, I'll continue to reference that because that is, that is the linchpin, as I said. And the majority held that there's no guarantee at this stage of the proceedings that the courts will be forced to weigh ecclesiastical matters. And, um, you know, we really kind of took that as a, akin to a ripeness issue, saying that, that, that there's no guarantee, um, but there is a possibility, and they acknowledge the possibility. And the, the um, difference of opinion from, from our perspective is that um, their, their focus on the bylaws issue and, and deciding which bylaws govern and, and really making that the um, really kind of the only issue that they substantively, substantively addressed um, is problematic because the bylaws issue is essentially a red herring. Um, whether the court has well, subject well, matter jurisdiction. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit and help me understand why you say what you just said. The uh, decision to terminate the defendant was made by the elders, correct? Correct. In the event that the elders lacked the authority to terminate the defendant because they were they said of bylaws provided that someone else was supposed to make that decision. I mean, I understand you don't agree with that, but let's assume hypothetically that that's the case. What else would the defendant need to show, other than the lack of authority on the part of the elders, uh, to terminate him in order to succeed on that claim? Well, the 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 problem with that is is that that's not the the uh, the only claim, and that claim. Under, I mean, I understand that, but I mean, the the first claim I think is essentially a wrongful termination claim. I think it's couched. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of got some other language in it, but that's the 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 guts of it, I think. Right. Well, wrongful termination, but also to be in in I guess relieving that wrongful alleged wrongful termination to be declared the bishop and senior pastor, and and the. The, those are uh, those are linked inextricably to, to the claim, and the problem with declaring uh, having him declared the bishop is that um, that that wasn't his position before. No one has ever um, referred well, to him. There's no as, question, but that he was the senior pastor, is there? Right, but it's but again, and, and especially in the original uh, complaint, it's spiritual leader, bishop, and senior pastor. Um, and the, the problem with that bishop declaration and why the defendant needs it and why he asked for it is um, that if you, if you go through the, the disputed bylaws, the purported bylaws, they give significant authority to, to the bishop. Um, and that's necessary. It's a necessary part of the defendant's requested relief because um, it doesn't help him if he's not declared the bishop. Um, and the, if you review the, the hiring... Does, 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 it, does it not help him if he is declared to be the senior pastor, at least until he is properly removed? If it can be, perhaps if it can be separated from the rest of the, the requested relief, now the... Why, why, can, why can't it be? Well, he's asking to be declared that under the, under the new bylaws, and the new bylaws um, by themselves have require ecclesiastical issues to be to be addressed, namely the issue of membership. I mean, the, the first um, paragraph of, of the new bylaws that he's asking to be declared the, the bishop and senior pastor under, I think that's the language in the requested relief, it's under the, the new bylaws. Um, the, the preamble to that, uh, those, those new bylaws says, and this is from the record on page 40, it's the, the first paragraph, first sentence, um, we, the congregation of Nations Forward Community Church, united under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, established the following bylaws. And as I said, the, the, in the entire 30-plus year history of this church, the, the, the congregation has not voted on any matter. Does that, does that argument go to the merits of which bylaws apply 
rather than whether the issue of which bylaw applies is an ecclesiastical matter that is beyond the scope of the court's jurisdiction. I believe the requested relief is to, to declare that, the, at least implicitly, that the new bylaws are the, the governing authority, and how those were adopted by its own language is through the congregation and, and, or, or, or um, by the, the members of the congregation in, a, in an organization where there are explicitly no members and they've never voted on anything in, in the past. And the, the key thing to pull about this membership issue is that um, to be a member under the new bylaws, you have to profess your faith in, in Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I don't know how we could expect the court to determine who is a, a member, who had the authority to, to enact these bylaws, as the, as the bylaws say, by their own terms in the, in the preamble, um, without delving into the ecclesiastical question of, of who's a voting member, who has sufficiently professed their faith in Jesus Christ, um, the, the role and authorities of those, those members um, under the new bylaws, and I think that that question is essential to, to all the relief that the defendant uh, requests. And, and under um, the Harris v. Matthews case, um, which, which was authored by Chief Justice Newby, um, it, it held that the church, or that the court, I'm sorry, cannot determine whether a particular church's ground for membership are spiritual, spiritually or doctrinally correct, and I think that would be part of this analysis here um, in determining whether these new bylaws, bylaws were properly established by, by the members of the congregation when uh, they've never voted on anything in the past and the court would, would be left to fill that void. Um, and, and also, just to, to highlight again on, on this point, um, the articles explicitly provide that, that the organization has no members. Um, I, I've touched on the, the bishop issue in response um, to the questions, but I also want to touch briefly on the um, spiritual leader language that that's, comes from the original counterclaim. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that um, asking the court to declare who is the spiritual leader of a church, who is the one called by God to lead the church, is, uh, is clearly, squarely an ecclesiastical question. Um, I, I also address the, the um, requirements that the, that the court is going to be able to, or that is going to be asked to make these determinations about um, membership under the new bylaws, and a, and a key part of, of the defendant's requested relief is uh, challenging whether a, a special meeting was called and, uh, and, and properly held and, and as part of that decide who is a voting member of the church. Um, and I, I would again argue that these are clearly ecclesiastical uh, issues and I would, I would point uh, your honors to the Emory case, it's a court of appeals case cited on page 14 of our brief um, where the court held that, that it had no subject matter ju jurisdiction to review whether the bylaws notice requirements were met and whether the type of church meetings that were called were proper. Um, also on this point, there's some cases that we cite, Court of Appeals cases on page 11, um, again going to this membership issue, the Azigni case, A-Z-I-G-N-E, is a, is a North Carolina Court of Appeals case where they held that membership in the church is a core ecclesiastical matter. Um, so again, addressing these, these membership issues is, is squarely in the face of, of uh, the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Um, the remaining claims that uh, are in the, the counterclaim and third-party complaint, the breach of fiduciary duty, the, the tortious interference with employment and, and civil conspiracy, um, these are, are also uh, ecclesiastical matters or would require the court to encounter ecclesiastical matters because they require a detailed examination of the party's roles and relationships, um, the, the director's evaluation of the defendant's job performance as a pastor, the complaints that were fielded about his uh, abilities to lead this religious congregation, um, and ultimately the, the management decision to, to terminate him. And under the, the Harris v. Matthews case, that I just mentioned, um, there the church members sued uh, 
uh, church, church officials for breach of fiduciary duty and, and civil conspiracy, and this court held that those claims are precisely the type of ecclesiastical inquiry that courts are forbidden to make. So, um, so let me let me interrupt you for just a second. Um, the Court of Appeals, in its opinion, said that the trial court um, has to first determine which bylaws apply, and that um, it has to do that based solely on contract and business law, um, without engaging in ecclesiastical matters. What's wrong with that um, assessment? Again, I think it gets back to that statement in the preamble that the uh, that the disputed bylaws, the new bylaws, were adopted by the congregation. It says we, the congregation, established these bylaws. And well, is that is that? Are you assuming that the second set of bylaws is going to be determined to be the one that applies? Uh, I think that is a necessary. As I was trying to articulate earlier, I think that's a necessary um, kind of a preliminary issue that to get to the the requested relief um, that the new bylaws, I think he asked to be, uh, in the prayer for relief in the pleading, asked to be declared the bishop and, and um, senior pastor under the new bylaws. Well, that doesn't go to the question of which set of bylaws is in effect or was in effect at the time, does it? I think he's asked as, as part of that for a declaratory judgment that the new bylaws <coughs> uh, govern. Well, what, do, what types of evidence go to determine which, sets of bylaws, which set of bylaws was in effect? Well, here, by the bylaws' own terms, it would be whether the, the members of the congregation uh, did adopt them. And part of that determination is going to have to be who's a, who's a member of the congregation, uh, because that's, that's a completely open question in this case, based on the nature of the, of the way this... Uh, organization was set up and how it and how it's run for 30 plus years. I mean, it's it's. Um, well, what would determine whether the first set of bylaws was in effect? Well, by by neutral principles of law, by the the um, principles of law of of um, yeah the, the corporate law, whether they were properly adopted by the by the directors who had authority. I mean, I get I guess the only situation where uh, we would encounter ecclesiastical issues is, is um, you know, determining the, with respect to the bylaws, is determining uh, the, the, who constitutes a member in the, the constitution of the congregation. Well, why isn't that just a question of fact instead of an ecclesiastical matter, is whether somebody was or was not a member of the, the church? Well, I think the, the evaluation of whether the court has subject matter jurisdiction starts at looking at the requested relief uh, what specifically is asked for, and then kind of working backwards to see what kind of of issues need to be resolved to to evaluate that relief. And I think the question of whether the new bylaws were were adopted uh, is an essential part of that. You know, maybe a, a question of fact regarding um, there may be questions of fact in, involved in that. But again, the to get to the requested relief. Um, y you have to assess the membership question in addition to the bishop question, the spiritual leader question. T tell, tell me why that is, Mr. Brotherson. That's where I'm having trouble following your argument. It seems to me you've got, it seems to be undisputed, and Mr. Smith can correct me if it's not undisputed, but it seems to me undisputed that in, under the initial set of bylaws, the director's or elders, I might get confused between the two parties, had the authority. Presumably, they would have had the authority to adopt a new set of bylaws. If, assuming for purposes of discussion that uh, they did have that authority, now that does not seem to me to be subject to contradiction. Why isn't the question of whether a new set of bylaws was properly adopted not a pure question of secular law now whether with the, the issue that you keep going back to of oh there aren't any members so they can't adopt it why isn't the question of whether the directors or elders adopted the set of bylaws a 
pure question of law. Well, that would certainly be our argument down the road is that they, they did. Well, because but it seems the, to me there, there are two questions. There are two questions. First of all, one is the issue of whether the bylaws are A or B. That seems to me to be a question of law, potentially. The issue of whether these bylaws make sense, given the fact that the church doesn't have members, the church has the right to control who members are, might go to the issue of were those bylaws properly, you know, as a matter of the merits, properly adopted. But I'm not sure I'm following you as to why the selection between one or the other is a pure, is an ecclesiastical matter over which the courts don't have any jurisdiction. I mean, it's a fairly fine line, but I'm, I'm having trouble seeing Right. Why, well, your argument doesn't really go to the merits of which set of bylaws were adopted rather than the question of whether the court has the authority to determine which set of bylaws governs. Well, and again, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm not articulating this. Uh, well, it's, it's better, a, I mean, the, the, quest, the, the line in my question is a fairly fine one, and I may not be. Uh, no, no, I, I, I understand the question. It, it's, again, I think it's the. Um, the fact that the bylaw, the, the new bylaws that would would substitute for the which I realize bylaws. you contend are are not valid for sure, a lot sure. of reasons, but by their terms, expressly in the first sentence, that act of of doing the new bylaws was done by the members. So if they're going to argue that the new bylaws govern, they're necessarily arguing that the members, that the congregation, voted, you know, and adopted these. What what if, as a matter of fact, and I'm cutting into what you may have reserved as your rebuttal time. What Sorry. if, a matter of fact, the directors or elders had approved the bylaws, even though they recite they were approved by the members? Well, I don't, I don't think uh, they, they could argue that. I think that would defeat their whole, um, undercut the entire adoption of the bylaws. Um, well, let me jump in here for a second. What, in the first set of bylaws, um, there's a provision that the bylaws can be amended or repealed and new bylaws adopted by a vote of the majority of the directors. Is there a question or does the record indicate where the authority would come from for a new set of bylaws to be adopted by a different means? No, and, and that argument kind of comes out of, of thin air. I mean, these, as I said in opening... Which argument that, comes out of thin air? That the that the bylaws, how the bylaws were adopted, the, the uh, second set of bylaws. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're at the preliminary stage of this case. We haven't gotten into, into that, and I don't want to anticipate what their argument is going to be <clears throat> with that respect. But, um, you know, as I said in the opening, the, the directors never saw this set of bylaws. They just, and they weren't known to the defendant at the time. They just kind of came out of, uh, in response to this, uh, this lawsuit. So if the if the original bylaws say that the bylaws can be repealed or changed by the vote of the directors and the new set of bylaws says that it was adopted by the membership and the record doesn't show that there's any authority for that to be the basis for new bylaws, where is the ecclesiastical issue in there? The ecclesiastical issue is is determining in, determining in this uh, the way that this church was set up who is that member who is a voting member who if there was a vote who How had does the it matter if, the, if there's no authority for the membership to vote for bylaws well just as as we sit here as the arguments have been put forth they purported that this is the, the new set of bylaws I'm not saying that there's any merit to that argument you know or that we don't have a, a really really strong case but the, the question here is whether um, giving them the requested relief uh, or assessing the adjudicating the requested relief requires resolution of that membership issue um, if we're going to reach the question of whether these new bylaws were were properly adopted well if the first issue is to decide whether there's any authority for the membership to vote on bylaws in any anywhere like in the old bylaws or somewhere else um, how is that an ecclesiastical question well, presumably the court would have to to um, assess whether the, the there is a membership who would have some voting authority um, or have the ability to, to formulate these 
formulate and adopt these bylaws. Okay. Um, quickly, and I know I'm running out of time here, but I did want to. Council, that's all your time. I mean, that's your, that would include any rebuttal. Sure, sure. Um, I quickly want to address the, the end of Judge Murphy's dissent where he would, would throw us all out of court and, and hold that, um, that our complaint should be dismissed as well. Um, I think using that neutral principles of law uh, analysis, it's, it's pretty clear that, that the original relief that we sought, the injunctive relief to, to prevent the entry on land, uh, the damages for conversion and destruction of property, um, not only can these be adjudicated by neutral principles of law, but they can only be adjudicated by neutral principles of law. And I think the, the best way to, to think about this is to remove the titles of church and pastor and replace them with, um, you know, uh, business owner, restaurant owner, and, and employee and cook that was fired, duly fired, and, and came back on the premises and was told to leave and, and um, you know, continued taking money from customers and putting it in his own pocket. Um, so I think that kind of uh, example helps to really differentiate our claims from, from the defendants and, and there has to be some legal recourse for, um, for the church to protect his property and I think that would be a, a dangerous precedent to set to, um, to throw us all out and, and preclude the church from, from proceeding on these uh, claims that can be assessed neutrally. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. morning. May it please the court, my name is James Smith. I'm a member of the Mecklenburg County Bar, and I represent the appellee in this matter, Philip R.J. Davis. I will refer to him in my argument as Pastor R.J. because that's how the parishioners called him when they addressed him. <clears throat> and this is a wrongful termination of employment case. Pastor R.J. claims that his employment as the bishop and senior pastor of the church was wrongfully terminated by the third-party defendant elders of the church, who I will refer to as the elders, the third-party defendants. They are the members of the board of directors, and they are also the elders, and they have been throughout uh, the history of this church, with the exception of the very beginnings of the church. Pastor R.J. claims that under the governing bylaws of the church, the elders had no authority to terminate his employment, and that the employment, his employment as the bishop and senior pastor could only be terminated by a supermajority vote of the con congregation. Where does this claim to be a bishop come from? If you, if you look at his installation papers, first of all, <clears throat> his father was the bishop and senior pastor of the church. Pastor R.J. was installed to succeed his father as the bishop and senior pastor. What documents do you have to support that? The installation papers suggest that. The uh, new bylaws speak to the question of, uh, <clears throat> it basically says uh, in section five entitled government in the fifth full paragraph, it states, and I quote, at Nations Ford Community Church, it is our conviction that scripture is clear. The bishop, as the senior pastor, has the privilege of leading the congregation. He was installed that, to lead Just because church. someone is a senior pastor, it doesn't say that makes him a bishop. It does indicate that the bishop would also share the role of senior pastor. And so... Uh, the question I have is, is there any written documentation where um, your client was um, uh, denoted to be the bishop? The installation papers, which are attached as, I believe, Exhibit E to uh, Pastor R.J.'s counterclaim and third-party complaint, state that he is stepping into the shoes of his father, who was recognized as the bishop and senior pastor of the church. You, you do agree that those are two separate roles, bishop and senior pastor? 
Well, except that the uh, bylaws we champion, the so-called new bylaws, uh, state that the bishop as senior pastor, essentially they're, they're both two roles in one role, I think. But it doesn't say anywhere senior pastor as bishop. Uh, that's true. It does not. Now, how did um, your client become the pastor? He was an assistant pastor in the church. Who ordained him? <clears throat> I beg your pardon? Who ordained him? I don't know. The uh, new bylaws indicate that all ord ordination is to be done by the elders. Uh, I'm looking at uh, section 13, licensing and ordination. 13.2 says the elders ordain. 13.3 says the elders revoke. Would that be applicable at all? I think that that's, that's that. I don't think so, Your Honor. Um, the, the new bylaws basically say that the um, bishop and senior pastor is the leader of the church. Who gets to interpret the, the, the new elders, I'm sorry, the, go ahead. I beg your pardon. The elders um, did ordain um, Pastor R.J. as the bishop and senior pastor of the church. And the uh, well, again, again, installation, uh, you're, you're, you're saying they ordained him to be bishop, uh, asking for any re other than, as you've indicated, the installation ceremony. Um, which, in your view, says it has to do with bishop as opposed to just senior pastor. Uh, perhaps we can look at that to see precisely what you're referring to. Maybe that's a good idea. Why don't, why don't we look at that and let you show me where you're talking about bishop. I'm sorry, Your Honor, what was the question? Well, I'm, I'm trying to see upon what the claim for bishop rests. Uh, I think you would have to concede that the employment letter says senior pastor. Yes. The page uh, uh, 55, uh, it says pastor-elect Philip R.J. Davis. Um, the letter from the elders talk about that they will uh, that pastor-elect uh, shall be installed as senior pastor. That's on page 57. I'm having a hard time finding uh, where the documentation that was provided says anything about bishop. Well, let me respond this way. Um, I don't know what documentation specifically refers to him as the bishop and senior pastor, but at this stage in the proceedings, as I understand the, the ground rules uh, that we're to follow uh, in determining a motion for subject matter jurisdiction or a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. As I understand it, the court takes as true the allegations of the pleading that is sought to be dismissed, and he has alleged that he is the bishop and senior pastor. Uh, I also understand that the court reviews the matter de novo and that it can review matters outside the um, pleadings uh, in consideration of that. Um, and I would note for the record that uh, in the record on appeal before this court, there is no evidence whatsoever um, 
uh, other than the fact that, that the pleadings, the plaintiff's pleadings dispute his claim to be the bishop, there's no evidence to support their claim that he isn't. So what significance do you give to uh, the letter which he signed with regard to uh, accepting employment as the senior pastor? At the time he signed that letter, uh, he was unaware that the new bylaws even existed. He thought the church was governed by the original bylaws, which is championed by the appellant. He did not discover the new bylaws until late 2017, which was more than a year after he was, you know, more than two years after he was installed as the bishop and senior pastor. So he didn't discover the, by the new bylaws until after that. If he believed that the elders were properly operating with their January 27, 2016 employment letter, and they believed they were properly operating with regard to that, uh, how else could he have become a senior pastor? I'm not sure how to answer that question. He, he, he became the senior pastor as an at-will employee uh, because at the time he was not aware the new bylaws existed. Well, if the new bylaws exist, is he actually, was he actually hired? Because under the new bylaws, uh, it, it doesn't even say how somebody becomes a bishop unless you think it, it does. Is there any indication in the new bylaws how somebody becomes a bishop? No. Uh, how about how somebody becomes a senior pastor? I, I think it simply vests in the senior pastor and bishop the leadership of the church. That's, that's the only thing that, that, that I saw in the governance provisions of the new bylaws. Who gets to interpret the new bylaws? If they were I think if they require uh, interpretation, that, that may raise a question as to whether the courts can delve into it. Oh. But if the bylaws are clear, what they say, then I'm not sure. I, I think that can then be resolved on a secular basis. But well, the, the, I thought you just indicated that the bylaws are not clear with regard to how somebody becomes a bishop. Uh, perhaps there can be arguments with regard to I, how... I said that they don't speak to the issue of how somebody becomes a bishop. Well, if they don't speak to it, that would seem to be unclear. Uh, perhaps uh, your interpretation, that's fine. Who gets the final say with regard to the interpretation of the new bylaws? Well, I, the interpretation of them? Interpretation. I don't know that the court can do that. Uh, article... Uh, 9.14 says the elders shall be the final authority in interpreting these bylaws. Well, they've just stated they didn't even know they existed. You, uh, you, me, you would certainly agree that the new bylaws say that the elders are the final authority in interpreting the bylaws. I mean, I just read it, 9.14. Right. 9.15 gives the bishop and senior pastor the right to require the elders to resign upon his elevation to the office. And that was done, and they refused. The and that's alleged in the counterclaim and third-party complaint. So can I jump in and ask a quick question? Do you agree with your uh, opposing counsel that a key issue here is which bylaws were in effect? Absolutely. That's the central issue in the case. Okay. Which bylaws apply? All right. And you, you um, and your client agree that the original bylaws, the 1997 bylaws, were adopted? Yes. Okay. And and the people who were in charge of the church at the time, the three elders and Pastor R.J.'s father, who was then the bishop and senior pastor of the church. 
they were the ones that were authorized by the church pursuant to a corporate resolution, which is Exhibit B to our counterclaim and third-party complaint. The church authorized them to seek and obtain a loan totaling nearly $6.8 million for the, for the uh, use of the church. And they did that, and the loan agreement between Branch Banking and Trust Company and the church called for the church to provide to the bank a set of the controlling bylaws of the church. We subpoenaed the bank, and the church provided the bylaws that were provided to them, and those bylaws were the new bylaws, not the original bylaws. And we contend that effectively, these three elders and the bishop and senior pastor, who clearly at the time were in control of the church and its operations, they were the ones authorized to go seek this loan. They provided these bylaws, these new bylaws, to the bank. And so we contend that they effectively adopted them as the new bylaws of the church, or that in the alternative, they are stopped to deny that those are the controlling bylaws of the church. Okay, so that gets to my other question, which is, is that determination of whether they did or did not adopt the new bylaws a question of fact? I think it is. Okay. What, what do we, you've got, at least as I understand it, six claims in, that you have asserted against the uh, other parties. Number three, for example, is money damages for the elders for breach of fiduciary obligations. Why isn't a breach of fiduciary duty claim barred by the doctrine that uh, courts can't become entangled in ecclesiastical matters? I mean, we have to look at these things on a claim-by-claim -claim basis, don't we? Understand. And I also understand that some of my, claim, my client's claims may not survive this examination. Well, but the court, at least in the Court of Appeals, all of them survived, didn't I they? understand that, but upon reading Harris versus Matthews, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that the fifth claim for relief in which Pastor R.J. seeks to examine the church's records of expenditures and seeks a constructive trust for any expenditures that were misapplied by the elders. The cases seem to me to be pretty clear, leading, led by Harris v. Matthews, that that claim um, is sufficiently invasive of church doctrine and practice to where the courts may not uh, intervene there. What, what, what about the breach of fiduciary duty claim? I've only seen that claim talked about in the cases in the context of wrongful use of expenditures in the court. So I'm not sure that a breach of fiduciary duty claim standing alone, which in this case involves unauthorized hiring of him on an at-will basis and then firing him on an at-will basis. Um, you know, we say that he violated the governing bylaws, and in so doing, they owed him a, free, a, a fiduciary obligation, and they breached it. Well, how, how do I you, haven't how, seen how do you determine, how do you, I'm sorry, you're, let me let you I haven't seen it. a case that, that focuses specifically on that issue. Well, how, how would you determine whether a minister or pastor of a church did or did not violate his or her fiduciary duties without engaging in some inquiry into the ecclesiastical practices of the church? As I understand it, a fiduciary relationship essentially involves one of trust and confidence. Right. And as such, I think the relationship between a bishop and senior pastor on the one hand and the elders of the church on the other hand is pretty clearly a relationship of trust and confidence. Right. But I don't think what, that... But how, do, how, do we get, how do we determine what the content of the relation of the trust of, of the relationship of trust and confidence, uh, I mean, what does it consist of? Uh, is it, in your view, a purely secular matter, or does the nature of that relationship vary to some extent with ecclesiastical considerations? I think in order to determine whether the elders breached their fiduciary obligations to Pastor R.J., 
all one needs to do is see that they purported to hire him on an at-will basis without authority, and then two and a half years later they purported to fire him as an at-will employee. I'm sorry, are you, are you contending that the decision to hire him on an at-will basis was somehow problematic? I think it was problematic. I think they're hiring aren't, him aren't, as an aren't most employees, employee. Aren't, aren't most employees in this state uh, hired on an at-will basis? I think basically when he is installed as the bishop and senior pastor, which is a dispute of fact between the parties, but when he is installed as the bishop and senior pastor, he cannot be deemed an at-will employee, and in any event under the new bylaws, the elders didn't have the authority to fire him. The congregation did. La lastly, what about, it? what about your tortious interference claim? How, how does that not Well, the elders were not the parties to the contract. They knew about the contract. They knew about the contractual relationship between him. And they, and they interfered with that by basically inducing the church to breach the contract. And it's your contention that that doesn't involve any ecclesiastical considerations either? I, I think that can probably be analyzed simply by looking at the elements of the claim for tortious interference with contract and applying them to the facts of this case. Well, what about civil conspiracy? I don't think that's a claim for relief anyway. It's it's simply, as I understand it. So it's a theory of liability, a th theory of who, who gets to pay what is the way I've always right. understood it. I understand this court may winnow through some of these claims. Uh, I suspect that's why we're here today, um, you know, that, that there may be a sense to well, Actually, I think we're here because there was a dissent and your colleagues decided that you should come. Okay. Um, Anyway, you know, to, to get back to my, my remarks, you know, I've already discussed how the, uh, the new bylaws came to replace the old ones. Essentially, the, uh, the bishop and senior pastor, Pastor R.J.'s father, and the three elders submitted the new bylaws to the bank as the governing bylaws of the church. That was in April of 2008. And we contend that ever since April of 2008, those effectively were the adopted bylaws of the church, or at, in the alternative, that in any event, the uh, elders uh, and the church are stopped to deny that they are the, the bylaws. Um, um, excuse me, Counselor. Yes, um, along the lines of estoppel, and, and I just heard what you talked about, about the bylaws, but. You also shared with us that at the time uh, the defendant actually signed on, uh, that he believed that the elders had the authority and the elders believed that they had the authority. Uh, why is it not an estoppel situation there where they entered into this agreement at will, both believing that they had the authority to do that and proceeded? How is that different from your estoppel claim that you're talking about with respect to, to the bylaws? I think the, the, in order for that estoppel argument to work in, in the, in the uh, example you just gave, uh, I, I think the fact that Pastor R.J. was unaware of the new bylaws at the time that he signed that employment at will agreement, which we say they didn't have the authority to offer him in the first place, um, I, I think that takes it out of an estoppel situation. What they both were proceeding as if they had the authority and that they could do so at will, uh, it, it seems to me, at least at first blush, it looks very similar to the argument you're arguing about the, uh, about the bylaws. Can you help me reconcile that? I don't know that I can. Um, I think when it comes to their decision to terminate his employment, you have, the you have what we claim to be the governing bylaws, which basically say the only way a pastor can be terminated is by a 75% vote of the members of the congregation who attend a general special meeting, I think special general meeting under the new bylaws, that they have to terminate him. Um, 
should the lower court determine that there's a stopple, then it appears to me that the <coughs> parties would be stopped from saying that he can't be terminated at will. Isn't that the point of a stopple? I think, I think that when you compare the letter terminating him as an at-will employee against what the bylaws provide for how that termination can proceed, I don't see an estoppel there. I think he has the right to invoke the bylaws that he claims are the governing bylaws in claiming that when they terminated his employment, that they, that they acted without proper authority because that authority was not vested in the elders, it was vested in the congregation. Thank you. So, oh, I'm just saying thank you, Chief. So you indicated there needed to be 75% of a vote, uh, but you said for pastor to terminate a senior pastor, what, you, what the bylaws indicate is that for the hiring or dismissal of the bishop, was there a 75% vote for the hiring of your client? No. So, Your Honor, we, 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 we believe that this case presents two central issues. Number one, which set of bylaws governed this case? And number two, were the elders authorized under what we claim to be the governing bylaws to terminate his employment? I mean, you know. Now, the, the appellants claim that that's going to require this court to invade purely ecclesiastical matters. But the fact is, on this record, there isn't a single shred of evidence to suggest what those ecclesiastical matters are or going to be. Now, the brief talks about it, but the briefs aren't evidence. There's no evidence in this record to suggest that, uh, you know, what the ecclesiastical matters are that would have to be invaded. And, you know, the, 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 the appellants certainly could have you know, submitted an affidavit from one of the elders basically saying, here are the ecclesiastical matters that we believe are forbidden to the court. But they didn't do that. You know, what we have are the pleadings. My client's verified uh, answer, counterclaim, and third-party complaint, and the uh, appellant's uh, verified complaint. That's what we have, and they have an affidavit, but the affidavit doesn't deal with the issues that we're all wrestling with this morning. The affidavit talks about alleged misdeeds that my client engaged in, uh, which led to them getting uh, a preliminary injunction against him, preventing him from coming on the premises. Um, I think the law in this case is pretty clear. Its application may be more difficult, but the law is clear. You know, the First Amendment in the United States Constitution and the uh, Article I, Section 13 of the North Carolina Constitution both prohibit the courts from involving themselves in matters of church doctrine or practice. But the case law is pretty unanimous in saying that not every dispute involving the church implicates ecclesiastical matters. And the cases say that when confronted with an issue like this, the courts must ask this question. Can the court resolve the dispute result using only neutral principles of law that are used in resolving all civil, contract, or property disputes? Put another way, I think um, Smith versus Prevet, a Court of Appeals decision, says that the question is, does the resolution of the legal claim require the court to interpret or weigh church doctrine. Now, there, there are three what I consider to be leading cases, all decided by this court, that deal with this. Harris versus Matthews, which is a 2007 decision. Atkins versus Walker, which is a 1973 decision. And Western Conference of Original Free Will Baptists of North Carolina versus Creech, which is a 1962 decision all three of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And in each of those cases, the court stated, and I quote, where civil, 
contract, or property rights are involved, the courts will inquire as to whether the church tribunal acted within the scope of its authority and observed its own organic forms and rules. We want the trial court to determine whether the third-party defendant elders acted within the scope of their authority and in accordance with the governing bylaws of the church when they terminated his employment. That's what we want the court to determine. And we don't think that invades ecclesiastical matters. I'm not going to address the standing issue that was initially raised because it's not briefed in the appellant's new brief, and so I assume they've abandoned it. And as to the motion to amend, uh, the appellants haven't shown that they were in any way prejudiced by the granting of the amendment. Um, and uh, we don't believe the amendment was a futile gesture. And that's basically all I have. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank yes, you, everyone. Sir.